This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. The holidays are fast approaching, with next Saturday doing double duty as both Christmas Eve and the first night of Hanukkah. That much, at least, is not in dispute. As for just about anything else in the news these days, there's the nagging question, is it fact or fiction? Rarely has the very notion of truth itself been such a political football as Ted Koppel will report in our Sunday morning cover story. Pizzagate, Vladimir Putin, and the U.S. elections in a world that can no longer distinguish fact from fiction. Why does it happen? Because everyone's on the Internet, and it's possible to do anything you want to do. It's all about engagement. If you can get things shared, you may actually be able to make money from it. And it's not just about fake news. The stuff that's really dangerous is real. Ahead on Sunday morning. For our Sunday profile this morning, we talked to the very real Nicole Kidman, an actress who's pretty much portrayed it all and seen it all. 
Tracy Smith will do the honors. I'm dying in this town! Nicole Kidman knows just how to break our hearts. I wish, for your sake, Leonard, I could be happy in this quietness. But no story she's ever told on screen makes her as emotional as her own. I was down saying, please give me the strength just to be able to wake up tomorrow. How long have you lived here? A decade, over a decade. Nicole Kidman opens up later on Sunday morning. Robbie Robertson is a veteran of a storied rock band known as The Band. This morning, he shares his memories with our Anthony Mason. In the 60s, after backing Bob Dylan, The Band became one of rock's most influential groups. Then, they suddenly called it quits. We played at Woodstock, Watkins Glen, there were 650,000 people. We had done it all. You were done. I was. And all the people were saying. Later on Sunday morning, Robbie Robertson on the 40th anniversary of The Last Waltz, rock's most famous farewell. There's a gifted artist who truly comes into his own this time of year. Nancy Giles has been watching him at work. Who are you going to call when you need someone special to wrap your holiday gifts? Texas artist Alton Dulaney. Now I'm going to take my fingers and I'm going to run around the edge of this. What does that do? So instead of you have like kind of a rounded puffy edge, mm -hmm. that really just crisps that edge down and squares it up. Ahead on Sunday morning. You would decorate with a bow. The art of gift wrapping. Jim Axelrod honors the late Craig Sager's battle against cancer. Rita Braver visits Paulo Coelho, author of The Alchemist. We'll also see and hear how the people of one city are finding harmony in their differences and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Are the news stories we Americans read, see, or hear fact or fiction? That's a loaded and sharply divisive question in these partisan high-tech times. No wonder the Oxford Dictionaries recently proclaimed post-truth to be the word of the year. Our cover story comes from senior correspondent Ted Koppel. Folks, I've been told this by high-up folks. They say, listen, Obama and Hillary both smell like sulfur. There's nothing new, of course, about using media to commit political slander. 1796, an anonymous editorial accused Thomas Jefferson of cowardice, of running away from British troops. The unidentified author? The current toast of Broadway. Alexander Hamilton! Our revered founding fathers could sling mud with the worst of them. It's not the nastiness that's new, it's the delivery systems. A radio talk show host by the name of Alex Jones can be heard nationwide spreading the manure that fertilizes conspiracy theories all over the Internet. Pizzagate, as it's called, is a rabbit hole that is horrifying to go down. Now, The charge that Hillary Clinton and her campaign manager, John Podesta, were running a child pornography ring out of the basement of a Washington pizza restaurant did not, as best we can tell, originate with Jones. The accuser remains anonymous, but 
That story had real consequences. 28-year-old Edgar Welch, after driving from North Carolina, entered the pizzeria and fired shots from a semi-automatic rifle. No one was hurt. He told police he came to rescue child victims. For weeks now, people have been accusing Lissa Muscatine and Bradley Graham of smuggling children through an underground tunnel from their bookstore, Politics and Prose, to the pizza restaurant. Uh, are the threats over? No, no, they're not over. Um, they continue, both online and, and on the phone. And, and I, I really call it the weaponization of social media and the Internet. What it's entitling people to do or enabling people to do is to take completely false information, make up whatever they want with no accountability. So what do you do? You call the police, the FBI. Turns out there's quite a high bar that's re required for uh, police and the FBI to, to take action, thanks to our First Amendment protections. Has that made you rethink whether the, the First Amendment needs some modifications given the age in which we live? It certainly has. You know, my father um, actually lost a job in defense of the First Amendment back in the McCarthy era. So I am probably more than most people pretty sensitive to that issue. However, we live in a different world now, and it's a brave new world that we still have not figured out. The purveyors of this stuff have been able to run rampant with no accountability and been able to do damage fairly freely. Hold on, though. We love the First Amendment, free speech, the right to criticize our leaders, protection, among other things, for our cartoonists, comedians, satirists. Testing, <laughs> testing. Gina, Gina. Until recently, the targets of satire were obliged to grit their teeth, grin, and bear it. But the shape of the battlefield has changed. Google, what is ISIS? Many more people received Donald Trump's tweet reacting to the Alec Baldwin impression than those who saw the original skit on NBC. Ted, you've been doing this for a million years. The average American could never have gotten to you and said, hey, Ted, you know, you missed this point. Glenn Beck has among the most popular radio shows in the nation. Now there's parody on, on social media. The downside is that there is, there is no gatekeeper and there's not a real feeling of personal responsibility online. In his time, Beck promoted some of the wildest right-wing conspiracy theories out there. The president's life, as you will see, is pure fiction. This is the new revised Glenn Beck. Since, really in the last year and, and since the election, been on as many sources as I can to beg the media to learn from my mistakes. You know, sometimes you have a road to Damascus moment. I've had my road to Damascus moment. And if we don't change this, if we can't find our way to each other, it's only gonna get worse. Which puts Glenn Beck on roughly the same page as Pope Francis. His holiness compared media's obsession with scandal and ugly things to the sickness of coprophilia. If you're just finishing breakfast, look it up later but it's nasty. It can, however, also be profitable. Margaret Sullivan is media correspondent for the Washington Post. There is now an industry out there of people who are producing things that are untrue and that are highly shareable, which is the magic word. 
It's engagement. It's all about engagement. If you can get things shared, you may actually be able to make money from it. How does it work? Sort of a, a fraction of a penny for every hit that yes. you get? Yes. BuzzFeed reported this, that they're a great story, that there was a group of teenagers in Macedonia who were doing nothing but coming up with fake news stories. They set up their own sites and they registered to attract advertising through Facebook. You know, they put these stories out there, I mean, made up to be wrong, but were sounded believable enough that people started sharing them and they could make, you know, pretty good money for teens in Macedonia. Just this week, Facebook implemented a new policy that will make it more difficult for the purveyors of fake news to get paid. But fake news is far from being the greatest threat. So one of your correspondents comes to the editorial board of the Washington Post and says, here's this story which was leaked by the Russians to WikiLeaks, and WikiLeaks has just leaked it to us. And we've checked on it, and it turns out to be true. What do you do with that? Well, we actually faced that choice throughout you know, the past you know, few months. Exactly. So if it's true, you run it. Well, if it's newsworthy. Josh Ernest is White House press secretary. So what the Russians did in the context of the election was to go and take information that was stored privately, hack into it, and release it selectively over the course of many, many days in an effort to try to politically damage, or at least erode confidence in our political system in a way that did politically damage uh, one candidate for president. If indeed the Russians have been engaged in trying to delegitimize one candidate, aid another candidate, undermine the electoral process, that comes dangerously close to a belligerent act, doesn't it? Obviously it's an unwelcome one, uh, and that's why you've seen such a, uh, such a robust response from the U.S. government. Well, uh, I haven't seen a robust response. Well, you've seen a robust response in terms of basically making clear publicly I've and in private. I've heard a lot of talk. Yeah. I I, has there been any response? Well, a, well, a robust response? Well, talk matters. Uh, what also matters it is... It only matters if you follow it up with action. And before leaving on vacation, yeah, President yeah. Obama hinted broadly that action was either forthcoming or had already been taken. The president also urged us to look in the mirror. If fake news that's being released by some foreign government is almost identical to reports that are being issued through partisan news venues, then it's not surprising that that foreign propaganda will have a greater effect. Is this an area where the First Amendment remains relevant? Uh, it, I, I think it's always relevant, right? It's the foundation right. of our democracy. But one of the things that we accept uh, as citizens of the United States are reasonable and responsible limitations uh, on our constitutional rights. For example, and I think most famously, the Supreme Court has said you can't yell fire in a crowded theater because that could pose a threat to the public. Well, if there was one statement of one justice in one case that I could eradicate from the face of the earth, it would be Oliver Wendell Holmes' statement about crying fire in a crowded theater. Jonathan Turley is a First Amendment scholar at George Washington University. 
I think there is a lot of reason to be worried. Uh, there's no question that mainstream media is collapsing on many fronts. Uh, the competition from the internet is insurmountable. But more importantly, people now have the ability to create their own personal echo chambers, to go to news sources that reaffirm their feelings. The question is, how do we solve that problem? The one way we cannot do that is to look to the government. That's a siren's call of censorship. What's the alternative? Civility, objective reporting, a renewed respect for facts? It's a thought. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac, December 18th, 1892, 124 years ago today, the day The Nutcracker by Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky had its world premiere in St. Petersburg, Russia. The full Nutcracker came to America with the San Francisco Ballet in 1944. The New York City Ballet, under George Balanchine, staged its first production in 1954 and went on to perform it right here on CBS on Christmas Day, 1958. Countless other companies over the years have told the timeless story of a wooden nutcracker come to life to lead a triumphant Christmas Eve battle against an oversized mouse king. How could you have Christmas without nutcracker? The late Irene Fokin was the daughter of prima ballerina Alexandra Fedorova, who danced as a child in the original St. Petersburg production. They call me the legend. I'm the last of the Fokins. Come on, genius, left foot. When Bill Geist visited with her in 2007, Madame Fokin was presiding over her 50th annual New Jersey production, drilling her young cast in the no-nonsense Russian manner. Oh, now that's disgusting. We've visited many other Nutcracker performances over the years. From the jazz-influenced Harlem Nutcracker in 1996 to last year's Pacific Northwest Ballet production with our own Luke Burbank. Give me your best mouse. Cast as a mouse for one night only. On stages large and small, Amateur and professional, the Nutcracker is the Christmas gift that truly keeps on giving. You want to fold it in on both ends. Next, it's a wrap. So that your box inside doesn't slip around. Tis the season for wrapping gifts, which is where the gifted artist Nancy Giles introduces us to comes in. Well, 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 my fine feathered friend. Alton Dulaney is a rapper. Okay, he has rapped a little, but this is the kind of rapping that's made him famous. I just run my fingers around all the edges, and it really gives a nice, square, crisp look. And then I've he knows a lot of tricks. Actually, if you're cutting paper with glitter, the glitter on the paper can dull your scissors. So that's why I keep a separate pair for my ribbon. Four minutes remaining. In 2008, he earned his ribbon as one of the best in the country. The winner is... It's Alton Delaney. 
winning Scotch Brand Tape's Most Gifted Rapper Competition. I was just focused. I was like, I am going to win this contest. He beat seven other finalists for the $10,000 grand prize. The ultimate challenge? To rap a grand piano. We only had 15 minutes to rap it. Alton Dulaney considers gift wrapping an art because first and foremost, Dulaney is an artist. What I'm trying to say is that art can be bigger than just that painting on the wall or that sculpture in the museum. It's a living thing. It's a way of life. What's going on? A former window dresser, he works in this narrow hallway studio at the University of Houston, where he's teaching and getting his Master of Fine Arts. You're sort of like out there. On display, What's yeah. all that about? What better way to get exposure for me and my work than really to be on view all the time? You know, what I also love about this is instant gratification. <laughs> so then I'm gonna take this hot little number. Oh my gosh. Dulaney's work is also on view at a nearby studio. I'd heard these rumors that there were these artists that lived in the woods mm -hmm. and they had this giant studio and they made this work. And for a lot of his work, art is the word. The studio is a stone's throw from his childhood home in the small town of Splendora, Texas. Population, around 1,600. So you live there? Yes, this is my little caravan. A trailer he has made into art to live in. And who lives there? My parents live here, so I grew up here. And the name of the street is? Dulaney Street, named after our family. And it was on this street where six-year-old Alton predicted the future to his parents, Oliver and Carol. Tell me what he told you. That he was going to be an artist, that he was going to travel, and he was going to be uh, famous someday. He did it. After touring with the circus, Dulaney found his way to New York City, where he had various design jobs and further developed his artistic persona. So I pre-dye the eggs, and I, I know you don't like pink, so I'll take the pink one. <laughs> After winning that rapping competition, he became the go-to guy each holiday on TV and in the homes of some exclusive clients. You guys have the final say. I want Tara Tomasic engaged Dulaney to help her decorate, trim the tree, and wrap the family's gifts. Now, some people may wonder, why would anybody hire somebody to help them with gift wrapping? What's up with that? Well, it's difficult. Just throwing it in a gift bag, which is kind of my go-to, just it seems like you fell down on putting thought into it at that point. So if you're thoughtful, this holiday, you too can be an artist, like Alton Dulaney. When I'm giving this to you, I want you to know that I created this for you. This is a creation from me to you, as if it were a work of art. Coming up... I haven't played it since... The last waltz. No, really? Yeah. Anthony Mason talks with the band's Robbie Robertson. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I take a load off, baby. Take a load for free. A tune that's considered one of the greatest in our rock and roll songbook. And it's the work of Robbie Robertson and the band. And although the band disbanded long ago, Robertson is still very much with us and talking with Anthony Mason for the record. That's it. 
It's been a long time since Robbie Robertson played one of his best-known songs. The night they drove old Dixie down. Yeah, I barely remember it. I haven't played it since the last waltz. No, really? Yeah. That was 40 years ago, 1976, when Robertson played his last gig with the band at the last waltz, rock's most famous farewell concert. We played at Woodstock, Watkins Glen, there were 650,000 people. We had done it all. You were done. I was. So yeah, these walls could talk. <laughs> and for the most part, Robertson hasn't looked back. But in his new memoir, Testimony, the band's principal songwriter returns to the time he was part of a revolution in music. Raised in Toronto, Robertson, who's half Mohawk Indian and half Jewish, was 10 when he started playing guitar. You had a job as a guitarist by the time you were 16. I was playing on the road full time, making a living, and playing the Chitlin circuit down south. He joined the band of Arkansas rockabilly singer Ronnie Hawkins, where he'd meet a young drummer named Levon Helm. You and Levon clicked right away. Yeah. Every bone in his body was musical, and he just lit up the room. So him and I just became like brothers. One by one, Garth Hudson, Richard Manuel, and Rick Danko also joined the group. And in 1964, they split off from Hawkins to form their own band, Levon and the Hawks. They'd make their way to New York, where Robertson encountered a young folk singer, Bob Dylan. We went by the studio when he was recording like a Rolling Stone. Just happened to drop in. Once upon a time, it dressed so fine. And he played this song, and I thought, wow, I don't think I've heard anything quite like this before. Dylan needed a backing band and hired the Hawks. He was switching from acoustic guitar to a new electric sound. It was a musical earthquake that angered his audience. In the documentary, No Direction Home, Dylan's folk fans called him a traitor. I don't believe you. It was so ugly every night. And some blamed the new band. What are you thinking when you hear that? I wasn't sure they were wrong, but it hurt, too. But Bob stayed with you. Bob didn't budge. And I thought, he's either right or crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but that must have meant a lot. It meant a lot. And by then, we were back to back in this thing. Oh, booming God, that booing, I can't stand it. Dylan would say, it was like putting our heads in the lion's mouth. There was something deep in his soul that was saying, I'm right and you're wrong. In 1967, after Dylan retreated to Woodstock, the band joined him, renting a small house nearby and turning the basement into a studio. They'd call the place Big Pink. And it was like Valhalla, you know? We're in our own world. Mm -hmm. We're making music. 
that nobody is supposed to ever hear. Dylan and the band would record more than 100 songs in the basement. It's an incredibly productive period. Out of the basement tapes comes music from Big Pink. Then Bob, within weeks, records John Wesley Harding. Along the watchtower. There couldn't have been more music in the air. Robertson would write perhaps his best-known song then, after noticing the stamp on his Martin guitar. I was looking inside the guitar, and I saw Nazareth, and I thought, wow, it's a beautiful sound. Mm -hmm. I pulled in the Nazareth, I was feeling about half past dead, and I thought, wow, I'm on to something here. I pulled in the Nazareth, I was feeling about half past dead. That song, The Weight, would appear on music from Big Pink, their groundbreaking debut album. They also debuted their new name. We got so used to everybody calling us the band all the time that we're playing with Bob. You're just the band. We're the band. For eight years, the band would be one of rock's most influential groups. When did you come to LA? In the fall of 1973. But by the mid-70s, when Robertson had resettled in Los Angeles, Drugs were causing friction in the band. It came to a place, and then I said, why don't we bring this episode to a conclusion? A beautiful musical conclusion. On Thanksgiving Day in 1976, they played their final concert. Dylan, Clapton, and Joni Mitchell all showed up for The Last Waltz, which was filmed by Martin Scorsese. Marty had this made for me. Robertson has since collaborated with Scorsese on the music for six films. But the dissolution of the band would leave a bitter taste, particularly with drummer Levon Helm, who saw the last waltz as Robertson's attempt to celebrate himself. You didn't want the band to break up, did you? Well, of course not. That <laughs> don't make sense. Have a big going-out-of-business concert. In a 2007 interview, five years before his death, Levon's bitterness was still raw. Is that rift ever going to heal? I doubt it. Not as long as he uh, wants to claim everything that the band ever made, you know. Did you guys try to patch things up ever down the road? As much as I loved him and admired his extraordinary musical talent, I could not do the bitterness anymore. But when they called me and said, He's in the hospital and he's dying. I went right to the hospital and I sat with him and I held his hand and I sat there and thought about the beautiful things that we had been through together. And I was happy for that moment to kind of wash away any dark clouds. I will never give up. Ahead, Craig Sager's brave battle. We pause now to remember sportscaster Craig Sager, who died Thursday at age 65 after a long battle with cancer. Outspoken to the end, he recently gave his last TV interview to our Jim Axelrod. The introduction, standing ovations from legends. Were you nervous out there? 
For years, Craig Sager was among America's best-known sportscasters, a favorite of both players and fans for his engaging way of reporting. Can't they send somebody else out here? Sorry, coach, it's you and me. And his flashy way of dressing. Talk about this outfit you got on. His sports coats weren't loud. They were a deafening roar. You take this outfit home and you burn it. But recently, Sager took his place as perhaps America's best-known cancer patient. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig Sager. Honored this year at the ESPYs, the Oscars of the sports world, for the courage he demonstrated in his harrowing two-and-a-half-year battle against leukemia. I will continue to keep fighting, sucking the marrow out of life as life sucks the marrow out of me. You've become perhaps America's highest profile cancer patient. Do you ever think about that? <laughs> Not in those terms, no. He had just finished his third bone marrow transplant at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston when we sat down with him in October. Sager resplendent in a flowery black and blue number. Cancer could mess with a lot, but never with Craig Sager's style. I'm fighting not only for myself and for my family, but I feel I am fighting for everybody who has cancer. Sager spent more than 40 years relentlessly looking for scoops. The guy in the trench coat not to be denied at home plate when Hank Aaron hit his 715th? That's Sager. But at 65, the cancer left his familiar face a touch less familiar. So this just comes in the mail every day. Yes. He faced his dire diagnosis nice with strength <laughs> and determination. And, uh, these big ones will be sports illustrated so people want me to sign. Moved by his newly found capacity to inspire. We hope you're feeling well and in good spirits. We are thinking of you. Is there a way in which you look at this battle and can see the blessings? Absolutely. The response I've gotten where people say, oh, I've, you know, I've been a negative person all my life and you've changed my life and now I'm more positive, I'm happier. Last month, he published a book, Living Out Loud, combining a charmingly lighthearted look at his career with the most serious lessons about life Sager had gleaned from facing death. I thought this was the key sentence of the whole thing. Funny how time takes on new meaning when others tell you that you don't have much of it left. Yeah. Nobody knows how long they have left on Earth. You know? There's no guarantees. And for me, when they tell you not once, twice, three times, you know, you know, I got a couple weeks to live or a couple months. Um, you have to determine how you want to do that. Just last weekend, his doctors having told him there was nothing more they could do, Craig Sager got out of his bed and went to his 10-year-old son's basketball game on Saturday and his 11-year-old daughter's game on Sunday. Three days later, the day before he died, Sager celebrated his 14th wedding anniversary with his wife, Stacy.
Is that where the victory is? How you live your life, even during the battle? Yes. Yeah. I I said that. You know, every day is just a canvas waiting to be painted, and uh, it's how you live that day, and that goes for everybody. It doesn't go just for me. It goes for everybody. A good reminder for us all. Let the sun shine. Still to come. In perfect harmony. There's harmony in the air this time of year. What better reason to introduce you to the man behind the Harmony Project? Good morning. You might say David Brown has harmony in his heart. It's usually on his calendar, too. We are going to sing through a few of our songs. This is his weekly choir practice at the Ohio Reformatory for Women near Columbus. Take a deep breath. David has big plans for the group. I, I got a bus and we're all leaving and gonna go to Burger King. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shh, but don't tell anybody, okay? Yeah. No, it's not that. We got teaching me how to be loved and we need to own it this time. Yeah. Own it, okay? Across town, Brown's 225-member community choir, The Harmony Project, is rehearsing too. Founded seven years ago, nobody has ever had to audition. She's the closest, but tenor, she's still not there, all right? But well, practice makes perfect. It's one thing to sing and to sing, carry the tune and sing, and then to sing like I saw them singing. How do you get them to do that? It's the combination of folks with a church background. When I say church, I don't mean church, I mean church. <laughs> um, you know, folks that come in from church background, they come in knowing how to sing. They come in not afraid. Of what Even the Presbyterians? Well, that's not this kind of church. <laughs> that's this kind of church. Um, and just for the record, both are fine, okay? All that matters David told me, you didn't have to audition to participate. I just thought, okay, he must be crazy. <laughs> As music director Reggie Jackson and others figured out, the Harmony Project is partly about music but all about harmony. You know, music may have gotten us in the door, but music is not necessarily what keeps us here. And it has really opened up opportunities for us to get to know each other. I think we're a lot more alike than we realize. You know, you got a ward sitting next to a CEO. <laughs> and it's like a joke, a rabbi, a ward, and a CEO. It's no joke. Ronnie Burke is the warden back at the Ohio Reformatory for Women. Tom Krause is the CEO of Donato's Pizza, and Sharon Mars 
is a rabbi. They never miss a cue, ever. Choir members Jen Robinson and Janae Miller have a special relationship. I've been in choirs all my life, and I've always looked for someone to help me, because I'm not only blind, I'm hearing impaired in both ears. Which is where Jen comes in. For six years, she stood by Janae's side with a helping hand. My hand is constantly on Janae's leg. So a tap is just to keep the beat. We do, I'll do a kind of a long drawn out um, line on her thigh if we're holding a note out. But um, I'm incredibly grateful to her for having this opportunity to kind of hear music differently. How much do the two of you have in common? Probably not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. We she, love music. We love music. <laughs> That's the whole point of the Harmony Project, that in its diversity, a community can find harmony. The only requirement to be part of the group is a commitment to community service. And did we mention there's a waiting list of 400? They must serve a certain number of hours in the community. I learned by being engaged with people who were different from me. All I want is the world to just keep moving in that direction. David Brown's vision of inclusiveness might date back to his youth in Louisiana. You were kind of an outsider in a lot of ways growing up. In my senior year, we moved to a school where I was the only, at that time, white boy um, in my class. And then in college, that's when I started to come to terms with my sexuality. And so that made me feel isolated and separated and like I didn't fit in. But he says that in Columbus, he found the community he was looking for. Seven years ago when we started. For the Harmony Project. To me, this choir is a snapshot of the greater Columbus community. This isn't us trying to show the world how it should be. This is us showing the world how we are. And who we are. You can do it! It has been a spiritual experience for me. Every single time we're in this room and we're rehearsing with David, I call him my rabbi. <laughs> He's just masterful, I think, at pulling these sparks out of us that are really holy. I think the humanity at its best is what harmony is. And I, I, I and that brings us to their one-night-only, sold-out performance last month at Columbus's landmark Ohio Theater. Let the sun shine, let the sun shine in, let the sun shine, let Some surprise guests joined the choir on stage. Ready? Sixteen inmates released for the evening from the Ohio Reformatory for Women. Can I give myself one more it takes chutzpah, courage, whatever you want to call it, to stand on that stage in a prison uniform and a t-shirt where you normally feel very judged by people. Teach me how to be they didn't feel judged. Teach me how to be And when that audience responded to those women, and they began to stand, and I could feel. Take it in, take it in, take it in, take it all the way in. I could feel what was happening in them. 
so could I. Then we did our job. Take it all the way in. Next, Santa's in blue. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A secret Santa is already going to town in the city Steve Hartman has been to. Last week, the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department was on the take. I want to give each of you $1,000. Each officer in this room got at least a grand, courtesy of the anonymous wealthy businessman I know only as Secret Santa. This is the day for you to just have fun. We ready to roll? All right. Their assignment was to go out into the community and find people who look like they could use an extra hundred this holiday season. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out something to wear for Christmas. People like Gwendolyn Jones. And I told my family already that we're not gonna be able to do Christmas this year because I just don't have the money to do it. Didn't have the money to do it <laughs> until now. And that's how it went. Oh my God. Benjamin after Benjamin. Oh my, this is for real. Armed assault after wonderful armed assault. <laughs> Most of the people they just happened upon, but some they sought out. Officer James Turney knew of a homeless woman staying at this motel with her two young children. Hi, Crystal. In fact, Turney is paying for their room out of his own pocket. Here's $1,000. Yeah. He gave her everything. You make me a better person. There are men and women that wear the badge and they stay on the line to protect us and to serve. It is no coincidence that Secret Santa chose the Kansas City, Kansas Police Department to give away his money this year. He's from around here, and this relatively small department lost two officers in the line of duty just 10 weeks apart. Allowing them this privilege was meant as a reminder of the inherent goodness in people. It's really neat because they see that you're a human being too. You're just like them. and. Uh, I think the uniform goes away and uh, you just realize that we're all the same people and uh, that's, that's the gift to me for this. In the end, the officers gave out nearly $30,000 to random strangers and special causes. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Those on the receiving end will no doubt have a merrier Christmas, while those who gave it away got to keep something even better, a message for a happier new year. We have angels. Yes. in the heaven, but here mm -hmm. you are the angels, really angels. you can uh, touch us. You can take that to the bank. Hello there. Still to come, Nicole Kidman on film and family. My little girls are southern girls. Do they have southern accents? They say y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and later, Taking aim with best-selling author Paolo Coelho. And there's some religion where you just have to say, I'll marry you three times and you're man and wife. I'll marry you. I'll marry you. I'll marry you. It's Sunday morning on CBS. And here again is Jane Pauley. Nicole Kidman and Jude Law were quite the couple in the 2003 movie Cold Mountain. 
She's an actress who seems to master almost any kind of role. Tracy Smith has our Sunday profile. Um, I was watching an interview from Far and Away Days, 2002. Oh my God. And yeah. you, you said, yeah, well, I walk funny. I do walk funny. You, how? Well, I have a little bit of a knock knee. Everyone you might say Nicole Kidman funny. is larger um, than life. And then I have a little bit of scoliosis. <laughs> okay, we're going to get my whole medical history here. She's nearly six feet without shoes, so she kind of stands out, even on a quiet street in her Nashville neighborhood. But as a kid growing up in Sydney, Australia, she didn't always like being the tallest girl in the room. I think maybe when I was little, uh, I, I would, you know, I would try to sort of, there's a way where you can look shorter, where you put your hip out and stand like that, which I sort of started doing when I was a teenager to look the same height as the boys. But... Um, then I just started to go, no, I'm going to stand up, pull my shoulders back and stand up straight and hold my head up high. And now, if it's possible, um, she stands even taller on film. Nicole Kidman can play anyone, and she often has, like the doomed song girl Satine in 2001's Moulin Rouge. A kiss on the hand, she was a Civil War heroine in 2003's Cold Mountain. There will be a reckoning. When this war is over, there will be a reckoning. And she was the icy villain in last year's teddy bear fantasy, Paddington. I'm going to stuff you, man. <gasps> Hello, I'm John. This is Sue. But Nicole Kidman's latest role just might be closest to home. Hello there. In the movie Lion, she plays fellow Australian Sue Brierley in the heart-wrenching true story of a couple who adopted a lost Indian boy and helped him find his birth mother. Why'd you connect so deeply with Sue? Because I have adoptive children, but she's also a mother. She's an unconditional love mother, if that makes sense. That love brings you to your knees. That love has you crawling over hot coals. That love has you laying down on a train track and giving up your life like that, if you have to. It seems that love and the pursuit of it has been a constant in her life. Here come the cars to the finish line. It's cold met her first husband, Tom Cruise, on the set of her first big Hollywood movie, 1990s NASCAR epic, Days of Thunder. I thought you weren't going to watch. I lied. They instantly became one of the most famous and photographed couples in the world. Was it that sudden to you? It was pretty sudden, but you know, when I fell in love, that was, everything else was like, oh, and I get distracted. And you were? I was distracted. distracted. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't ignoring you. She still won't say exactly why, but after 10 years and two adopted children, Kidman and Cruz went their separate ways. I'm dying in this town! Kidman channeled her anguish over the breakup and put on a prosthetic nose to play the role of a lifetime. British author Virginia Woolf in 2002's The Hours. But if it is a choice between Richmond and death, I choose death. As a viewer, I found it hard to shake the sadness of that movie. Mm -hmm. Did you find that difficult? Yeah, I mean, I was deeply sad at the times. 
So then I sort of just kind of got lost in her and it all sounds sort of mumbo-jumbo crazy stuff, but it kind of saved my life. So when you say saved your life, what do you mean? I mean, let me feel like, oh, I can keep going. It's okay. Life is, life goes on. And on it went. She won the 2003 Oscar for Best Actress with most of her family, including Mother Janelle, by her side. You gave her your Oscar? And then I took it back. <laughs> you did? <laughs> I did. I gave it to her. And then I was sitting on the mantel. I'm like, why is it sitting there? So she had it for a little while. I'll give it back to you, Mama. <laughs> but I suddenly went, actually, now I want it back. <laughs> She found another keeper in 2005, country singer and fellow Aussie Keith Urban, whom she met at an event in Los Angeles. They were married the following year and now have two daughters. What was it between the two of you that clicked when you first met? Chemistry. We just had chemistry. I never underestimate the power of chemistry. And she knows good chemistry when she sees it. Her own parents were married 50 years until 2014, when her beloved dad, Dr. Tony Kidman, died suddenly of a heart attack. Understandably, she was a wreck. When my father passed away, I literally was that, I was down saying, please give me the strength just to be able to wake up tomorrow, because I was shattered beyond belief at that. I didn't even know how to get up from this. How did you get up? Because I had a husband that came right back. I called him screaming and crying and he was about to go on stage and he walked off stage and he got on a plane. He'd just gotten there. He flew six hours and he was right back there and he literally picked me up and carried, pretty much carried me through the next two weeks. And I also had, you know, my children going, it's going to be all right, Mama. Is that what they said? Well, it's interesting the way children view things because they're like, you've still got your mommy. This is what I love. I mean, and I her love children it. have her. When she's not working, the 49-year-old Kidman spends most of her time here in Nashville. Were you at all worried about moving here at first? Actually, the opposite. Um, when I met Keith, he brought me down here and we went to a place called Leaker's Fork, which is about... About 40 minutes from here, 30 minutes. And I was like, oh, I so hope he asked me to marry him and I can live here. <laughs> um, now both my daughters were born in Nashville. So, yeah, we're Nashvillians. My little girls are southern girls. Do they have southern accents? They say y'all. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do it. There you go. <laughs> She's already racking up award nominations for Lion. But you get the sense that what Nicole Kidman really wants, more than any trophy, is time. What's the impression that you'd like to leave on the world? I would just like to, um, it makes me sad, I would just like to be here long enough to have my, my children grow up and for me to see them thriving. Right? Oh, you should not have done this to me. So that's all I ask, and that my husband and I are, are with each other. Simple, <laughs> simple requests. Why does it make you, just the idea of 
the kids getting older? Why does it get to Just you? wanting to be here. I'm an older mother, so, you know. It's that prayer of, I want to be here. Gosh, let oh, me be please. here. Yeah, please, please. But hey, what will be, will be. You have a favorite? Coming up, no, Rita uh, Braver with the I author have, uh, of The Alchemist. Okay, one more if you like. <laughs> Study the fine print of any novel by Paulo Coelho and you'll find all the signs of a master at work. Rita Braver traveled to Switzerland to pay him a visit. For this 69-year-old man, his morning routine on the terrace of his penthouse in Geneva, Switzerland, is not just archery, but a form of meditation. It, it works wonderfully, because every time that you open the bowl, you can see the universe. And soulful observations like that have made Paolo Coelho one of the top-selling authors in the world. I have two, 210 million books uh, in print, uh, which means 600 million people read my books because the average is three per book. It's the same kind of sensational headlines you would find today. Absolutely. <laughs> His latest novel is based on the life of Mata Hari, the Dutch-born exotic dancer who in 1917 was executed by the French. Accused, Quelo believes falsely, of spying for Germany. And that's a whole firing squad ready the to shoot. The whole firing squad here. She refused to be blindfolded and she wanted to die like she lived, you know, standing. Standing up straight. When I start writing as if I were Matahari, her voice was you could talking hear to her. me. I could hear her. She was innocent of spying, but she was not that innocent. She used to use lies to survive, and then people lied against her and condemned her to death. The Spy is Quello's 28th book. This is French. This is Polish. A self-described internet junkie, he has more Facebook followers than any other author. Many drawn to him because of his most famous work, The Alchemist. It has spent an astonishing eight years on the New York Times bestseller list. It's an allegorical tale of an Andalusian shepherd boy who goes searching for treasure and ends up finding the key to happiness. People started calling you a guru, a seer, a prophet for writing that book. Do you think so? Of course not. I was trying to understand my own life. And what a life. Coelho was raised in a conservative Brazilian Catholic family. You wanted to become a writer from an early age, but your parents didn't approve of that. So they put me in a mental institution. In a mental institution. Yeah. He would escape three times before his parents gave up. Coelho adopted a hippie lifestyle and in a few years was writing hit songs. But forces linked to the ruling right-wing Brazilian military establishment thought his counterculture lyrics 
bore a secret communist message. I was then taken to this hidden places where they used to torture and things like this. That was the worst part of my life. What happened to you there? I was beaten. They used shocks, total isolation, in a dark room, no lights, with a siren, wow, 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 wow. Released after a month, he found work writing for TV. And he found love with artist Christina Oitisika, now his wife. This was your wedding ring. (laughs) But by 1980, he wanted to write books. I said, Christina, I have you. I have money. I have a work that I'm not very enthusiastic about, but... What am I doing here? I have $17,000 to find the meaning of life. (laughs) If it is more expensive, (laughs) we're lost. It would be years before The Alchemist found a U.S. publisher and took off, helped in part by famous fans like President Clinton and Madonna. But now... You make no secret about the fact that having written this book made you very rich. Very much. (laughs) I read, if it's true, more than $500 million rich. Yeah, more, more, more. Today, Paolo and Christina give millions to charity and own several homes, including this elegant apartment decorated with her artwork. Just a short walk away is the institute that houses his archive. The most important thing I have, my first typewriter when I was 15 years old, And what's this one? And this one I wrote to the alchemist. And it is here that Paolo Coelho can really appreciate the enormity of what he has accomplished. It is something that I could never, ever dream of. And then you see that your soul goes beyond yourself. What all these people have in common? I would say, what am I doing here? That is the main question. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.